This is the game World Cup 2022. Today we'll discuss Germany who give themselves a fighting chance of qualification with a draw against Spain here in Doha. Japan miss out on automatic qualification for now after their defeat to Costa Rica. We'll talk about a lacklustre Belgium who were beaten by a buoyant Morocco and what happened to Canada as they go home early. We'll also be talking about Lionel Messi's future and a potential move to Inter Miami. This is the game. Hello and welcome to the game. I am Hugh Wissencroft alongside Gregor Robertson and James Gearbrandt. This evening we have to talk about a game that so many of us were looking forward to in Group E and it ended Spain 1, Germany 1 as the Germans stay alive in the World Cup. Uh, Nicholas Fulkrug counselling out Alvaro Morata's opener and that means Germany can still qualify with a win over Costa Rica in their final game if Japan lose to Spain and if Japan get a draw... They'd need to beat Costa Rica by at least two goals to go through, but certainly back in the favour of the Germans, you would now expect them uh, to get the result they need against Costa Rica and go through. Gregor, what did you make of this game? Um, Just before we came on, we've sort of had a couple of words shared about it. And I kind of felt, you know, it was two decent teams and a pretty decent game. You weren't as positive as I was. Clearly, these two teams are among the best in the competition. But I just I was disappointed in the in the game itself and a little bit disappointed in sort of the level of you know, Spain dominated possession, but they didn't create a great number of chances. They're really a kind of snapshot early on from Olmo and the goal was a kind of came from, from nothing. It was a it was a great run uh, by Morata and a, a nice kind of delicate finish, but it came from nothing. I, I also I have question marks about both teams' defences. There's some really shaky defensive lines in terms of like playing offside sometimes. So they definitely haven't. Neither team has done that much to convince me that they're real contenders. I feel like if anyone is, Spain could could click. They could click, and because as you said, you know, in our previews, they they hog the ball, and when they're really on song, there's kind of moments of their of their play that are, that it's going to be hard for anyone to deal with. It's just whether they're going to have someone to stick the ball in the back of the net at the end of it or not. And as I say, that could. That could come. They've got enough talent, enough players capable of doing it. It might not be an out-and-out number nine. But Germany still, I think, have a lot of questions uh, hanging over them and clearly a lot of work to do to, to qualify. I tend to agree with a lot of what you said, to be perfectly honest. I just I just think it was a, you know, it's quite engrossing, the spectacle, let's call it that. But listen, I, I was talking to mates during this one. You know, we were literally listing out... <laughs> German greats in terms of the number nine position saying what happened to all of these why aren't they producing them who's Nicholas Fulkrug and oh he scored by the way so there you go but um, it was a little bit like that in terms of their forward position and then of course with Spain you know as much as he's done in his career Alvaro Morata even though he scored on this night as well you kind of think if they had a lethal number nine up there it's a different story for this Spain team. And then when it comes to that Spanish defence, even though I tip them to do quite well at the start, Gregor, I think when they've started this tournament, I've seen Rodri playing centre-half. I'm immediately thinking, this is not going to be a back line that's going to be World Cup winning worthy. I hate to say it, Sergio Busquets, it's not that he had a particularly bad game, but I think someone like Rodri, who just can keep up with the pace a little bit better, when you saw those German counter-attacks, or those little breaks, even from the halfway line, turning over possession... You just see, uh, and listen, the likes of Leroy Sané pull away from most players, but you just see that sort of panic come in. I think they all know defensively they just can't cope with a really incisive attack. 
Germany don't have a really incisive attack. But I think the little half chances that they did give the Germans better sides will punish Spain with the way that they've defended in these first couple of games. All right, Costa Rica wasn't a huge test, but I think tonight a Germany side that isn't, again, for for me, one of the favourites for this tournament gave them enough worries to make me think uh, that could be their big issue as the tournament uh, continues. James, what do you make of the game tonight? It was interesting what Gregor said about the defensive lines and the shakiness of the defensive lines. That's been a bit of a theme for Germany. And in fact, the second goal they conceded against Japan came from uh, the two centre-backs trying to play offside. And, and Zula, who in that game was playing at right back, not playing offside. And, and you could see there was a chance they gave up towards the end of this game where again, the two centre-backs were trying to play offside and it was Schlotterbeck who'd come on at left-back playing, I can't remember who it was, onside. And he actually got back and made an excellent recovery tackle. But the, the issue was there nonetheless of, of the, 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 the miscommunication in, in, in defence. I felt also that it was, a, I mean, I slightly, I suppose, take it, would slightly, slightly disagree with what, with what you said, Hugh. I felt it was a game that in some ways showed the value of having a number nine, even if it's an imperfect number nine. I mean, we, we all know that Alvaro Morata has his his limitations and, and Niklas Fulkrug is 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 a you know a very good Bundesliga pro, but but someone who up until this season has not been thought of as being an, an international class player. But the two moments of of real last, I guess, in, in, in the match from an attacking point of view were the run that Morata made, that that near post dart that he made and, and the finish, which was a, a lovely piece of of, of of foot control, I suppose, of the, you know, the, the angle of the foot. And and then with Fulkrug, just, um, I suppose, the, the knack of finding himself in that position, but but more so the quality of the strike that just left Unai Simon absolutely no chance and, it, and it, it, you know number nines can be maddening particularly if, if they're not absolutely top class you know particularly if you're a manager like Luis Enrique or Hansi Flick and you you crave control and, and possession and, and, a, and a very mobile and coordinated press but it did show I think the value of having a centre forward even if it's not an absolutely top class one Uh, It's interesting, actually, particularly from the German point of view, because as I wrote in my preview to the game, the issue that that Germany had against Japan is is in some ways a little bit reminiscent of some of the issues that Bayern were having at the start of the season. As as we all know, this German team is drawn very heavily from the the Bayern Munich uh, squad. And Julian Nagelsmann actually, to some extent, solved a lot of those issues by putting in a very orthodox number nine. Eric Maxim Trupo Mutting. Again, you know, a striker that, you know, you probably wouldn't feel is of the absolute highest caliber, but he really helped the team to play better. And, and I just wonder if Hansi Flick does now make that change. I, I didn't feel Kai Havertz played very well in the Japan game. And I, and I didn't really feel that playing Thomas Muller as the number nine particularly solved that problem today and and I just wonder you know I mean we've seen teams win the World Cup with you know less than absolutely top top level number nines in the past haven't we Um, and I just wonder if Hansi Flick is now tempted to to make that change and put Fulkrug on from the start. 
No, he absolutely should. I mean, I agree with everything that you've said, James, about the number nine positions. I was uh, sort of raging about uh, Kai Havertz. You know, it just lacks that aggression to really take a great game by the scruff of the neck. And um, no, it's no disrespect to full group, no disrespect to Morata. I totally agree with you. I think you do need that foil, a, a number nine to play off, and both of these sides need it, and both, you know, showed their worth, if you like, in this game. But I just think in terms of winning this competition, those two players, even the moment that you mentioned with Schottelbeck getting back for um, the tackle on, on Morata, kind of underlined just the lack of, you know, that real top draw quality in that position to take them on to win this trophy. But in terms of their best sides, absolutely. I agree with you. I agree with you on that one. Um, yeah, I think now, do we all agree that they'll both go through or any worries for either of these teams at this point in time? Well, Germany have, have been really lucky. Let's be, let's be honest. I think, you know, they've got Costa Rica and Spain play Japan. And of course, Japan were impressive in the first game. They were much less so against Costa Rica uh, earlier on today. And you would expect, even if Spain were, were to were to make changes, that, that they will win. And then it becomes about, you know, how many goals Germany could score against Costa Rica, who have been absolutely woeful, despite somehow managing to win, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about later. So I, I ultimately think they'll they'll both go through and I think Germany will be quite lucky to, to do so. One final thing I wanted to mention and, and, and Gregor actually I'd really like to get your perspective on this. I just feel for me Germany are so underpowered at fullback. I, I feel Kera and uh, David Raum uh, and, and Raum in fairness to him had had not a terrible game against against um, Japan. I just feel that, that those two players are, are, are quite far short of, of what you know Germany has had in, in those positions in the past. And it's interesting because looking back at Hansi Flick's Bayern Munich team, the team that won the Champions League that season, you had uh, Alfonso Davies as one as the left back and Joshua Kimmich as, as the right back. And if I think back to probably Germany's best tournament display in recent years, not not a particularly high bar, admittedly, but it was it was the group game against Portugal at the last Euros, where again you had Kimmich actually as a right. They were playing wing backs on that day, so you had Kimmich as the right wing back and Robin Hussens as the left wing back. And I just feel that I really rate Kimmich both as a six and as a right back, but I just feel that Germany just lacks something in those fullback positions, particularly in terms of the in terms of the attacking quality. And it's so hard, you know, it's so hard to play to, to play the game and attack in the way you want to attack if you don't have real quality in the fullback positions and you're not creating those overloads. It is interesting because because Hansi Flick obviously played Joshua Kimmich as a right back when he was at Bayern Munich and was asked in his press conference to preview this game, would you consider moving Kimmich back to right back? For I think it was it was phrased, you know, would you consider doing it for the good of the team? And he responded by saying something like why, why, why for the good of the team and sort of you know implying that that's that's not a change that he's considering but but for me i i, I feel that that's a change I, I i would consider after all when when Bayern munich won the champions league under hansi flick you had kimmich at right back and you had the a double pivot of tiago alcantara and Neil goretzka and, and you could have double pivot of Goretzka and Ilkay Gundogan, not necessarily an entirely dissimilar player to Thiago Alcantara. So what do you think of that, Gregor? You're absolutely right. I mean, these are a massive step down in quality from 
German fullbacks of the past, basically, and recent past. And you're right, Kimmich is a clear option at right back and midfield is somewhere where they're quite well stocked. I'd actually flip it into Spain as well and say, certainly going forward, um, Alba and Carvajal can add something, but I, I would think the you know, 30 and 33 respectively, I think. Um, and we saw young Baldi coming on uh, quite late in the game at left back. And, you know, moments later, conceding a goal where Fulkrug was in the position, and, you know, Musiala kind of took the ball around in behind Baldi. And I, I'm not laying the blame anyway in any way at his door, but that still, to me, seems, I don't know, maybe I'm a bit old-fashioned in this, it seems strange to be changing anyone in your back four when you're 1-0 up in a World Cup game with seven minutes to play. Both sides, it was, we've seen today, have, have issues defensively. There's no doubt about that. The only reason I would say that Spain might be slightly better placed is that they can dominate the ball more and I think they might be exposed kind of less frequently. I think you've written about Sula as well and, and that he's not had a great time for, for Dortmund and, and you know, it was Sula who, who lost Morata. It was a good run, but I think from the defensive point of view as well, that was that was an error. So, yeah, I'm not sure either team are kind of best placed defensively to, to go all the way. And I guess we've already mentioned this game already, Gregor. A Japan nil, Costa Rica won, full up with the goal. Japan failing to take that big step towards the knockout stages. Fuller's late goal, earning Costa Rica. A pretty, pretty smash and grab victory, you've got to say. The Japan boss, Moriyasu, went for rotation. Five changes. And I think he's disrupted the rhythm completely. I mean, if it's your first choice 11 and they beat Germany in the opening game, why on earth would you make five changes? Tell me why. You really think I can answer that? <laughs> I have no idea. They just lacked any of the kind of pace or purpose with which they played against, you know, for large swathes of the game against Germany. I thought when Takuma Asano came on in the second half, he, you know, he, he scored that superb winner against Germany. He came on at time and he, he looked quite lively at the start. There was definitely an uptick in energy and, and sort of you know, impetus. But, uh, even he faded, and and there was really you know, but for a Gomez scramble at the end, they really didn't carve out many many really good opportunities. So it's a big big disappointment after after that original um, you know after the the opening game, and from Costa Rica's point of view, it's just like it seems remarkable that they've had one shot on target. I think I think Martin Hardy's report he said it's 171 minutes of the World Cup without a, a shot on target. <laughs> um, and somehow they're within a still with uh, have a chance of, of progressing. Yeah, I mean you've got to give them credit, Costa Rica, to even have the the sort of mental. I mean a little bit, a, little, a very little bit. <laughs> well, I'm, I was just going to say, but to 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 not be totally demoralised, you know, from losing your yeah, first game seven yeah. nil to come out and at least you know keep that defensive structure, frustrate Japan. You know, they fought for a lot of that game. They had to. Um, and then to come out with the win, you know, bad bit of goalkeeping. But still, you've got to give them credit for, you know, I can't imagine what was said about them back home. I can't imagine what was said in the changing room between one another after you lose a game at the World Cup 7-0, low point in the careers of all of those players. So to come out in the next game and get a win as underdogs, however badly you feel Japan played, James, we still give them credit, don't we? Yeah, I, I think Costa Rica clearly came out with... Um you know, a particular game plan and, and, and they executed it well um, with, you know, obviously a big, a big slice of good fortune. But like you, I was, I was disappointed and also a little bit 
mystified by Japan and, and, and some of the selections in particular. I mean, so in the first game they played Maeda, the Celtic striker up front, and obviously Asano came on early in the second half. And then in the second game, you don't play either of those two players. You, you play a centre-forward who plays for Circle Bruges in the uh, Belgian top league and has 12 caps and no goals. Seemed odd to me. Mitoma, the Brighton winger, I thought was class when he came on against Germany and indeed when he came on in this game, but it wasn't until, you know, quite deep in the second half. We haven't really seen much of Tomiyasu, the, the Arsenal defender, which, I mean, I don't, you know, don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that, you know, someone, but just because they play for a Premier League size is automatically better than, you know, a certain other player. But to me, it does seem curious that a guy who's playing for the team that are top of the Premier League, you know, was was uh, left out in favour of um, 36-year-old Yuto Nagatomo. I mean, yeah, just 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 some odd, odd selections there. But Costa Rica now are in, are in you know, a reasonably decent position there. You know, if, um, if, as we all assume, Spain beat Japan, Costa Rica only need to avoid defeat against Germany, which obviously, you know, Germany will be favoured to win that match. But for Costa Rica, you know, that's a, that's a decent position that they've got themselves into going into the final round with, a, with you know, half a chance to, to, to qualify. They'll be happy with that, I would have thought. I think there'll be a blockbuster end to this group. Um, I was pretty sad that Japan didn't win the game today because, I, you know, I, I tipped them to do well. I just want to say for the record, blame the manager, not me. I couldn't have foreseen five changes. I still think they could do well. And if they play how they played in the opening game, uh, they definitely could be going through to the knockout stages. So the end of Group E, uh, at this point, I am predicting a blockbuster finish. Let's take a look at the other group that played today before we go. Morocco causing the latest shock at a World Cup, beating Belgium 2-0. It's a World Cup that's been full of surprises. Morocco move above Belgium on four points. Croatia, top group F at the moment on goal difference after they beat Canada 4-1. The Canadians go home. First World Cup in 36 years, back-to-back defeats. Let's start, though, with Morocco. An absolutely fantastic win for them, James. You went to this game, didn't you? Yes, I was I was there. It was a thoroughly deserved victory. Uh the match itself, I mean, it was it was fantastic to be there. The atmosphere was quite exceptional. You know, I would estimate that probably 95 or even more, 95% plus of the of the crowd were, were supporting Morocco. And they made an incredible noise. The whistles for the for the Belgian team whenever they were in possession were just absolutely deafening. So it really was quite something in terms of in terms of atmosphere. Uh, we've seen that a, a little bit when the Arab nations have have played, particularly against the European nations. Those have been the the matches that the, where the atmosphere, in, in, in my experience, has been has been the best and it was again today and it was a definite factor I think you know it really turned it into a home game for Morocco and they did play well um Hakim Ziyech was absolutely excellent and this is a player I remember who was completely out in the cold under the previous Morocco manager Valid Halahodzic um, and has only really 
been reintegrated back into the team in the last few months with uh, the new manager, Walid Regragui. But he was absolutely superb. When Ziyech is on, as we all know, he can be absolutely sensational. And he, and he really was terrific today. And Belgium were, were disappointing. Uh, you know, they, they just look like a team who have kind of fallen off the other the other side of the of the kind of curve if you like they were at their they were at their peak i think really in in, in 2018 where they looked a uh, pretty good team at that world cup really um pretty well coached and and the thing about belgium that that they don't they haven't really got a, a, a lot of credit for like a lot of people feel they've underperformed as a golden generation and that that may or may not be true but in generally speaking this has been a pretty solid tournament team, uh, a team that, you know, has not often been scintillating, but that has been pretty good at beating the teams that it's expected to beat. I think Belgium had won coming into this game 12 of their last 14 tournament games and the two that they'd lost, they'd lost by a single goal to France at the last World Cup and Italy at the Euros, the two, obviously the two eventual champions of those tournaments. So this is a pretty, you know, nuggety kind of effective team that, you know, has been pretty good at winning the matches that it's expected to win. But today, Morocco, you know, found a way to put an end to that trend and Belgium looked, looked poor, to be honest. Uh, the, the signs have been there, I think, in their opening, their opening game against Canada, where they were quite lucky, really, to, to get out of that game with a, with a win. They like tempo. De Bruyne didn't really have a great game, but but equally you could kind of see the frustration in him at, at you know the kind of the lack of movement and uh, around him. Um, you know, it's a structure obviously it's, uh, it goes without saying, but it's a structure that's so different to what he plays in at club level, and you could really see some of that frustration today. They are in trouble because uh, they've got to play Croatia in their final game probably a match that they'll have to win and Croatia looked good today so yeah Belgium are up against them. Gregor what did you make of, of this game? Positives of course uh, for Morocco and that victory in front of their uh, delighted fans but dejection for Belgium's and their team must be strongly criticised after this one. Roberto Martinez came out and said that they have to find freedom and expression in their play and that kind of summed up exactly what they're they're lacking, have lacked so far in the in the tournament altogether. As James said, they were very fortunate against Canada. They had very little in the way of, I don't know, just kind of fight actually. And you know, we know that there's a lot of they're starting eleven. Seven were in the, are in their thirties. We know that this is a, a group of players that are, whose best days are behind them. I think Eden Hazard even admitted as much in the, prior to the game, which didn't go down very well. But as James said, it, you know, even Kevin De Bruyne he was really, really off bar against. Canada and he did very little again here. Alex Witzel just I thought he was shocking today. And even uh, Thibaut, Thibaut Courtois had had an off day and he's we're talking about probably the best goalkeeper in the world in recent form. So something is is not has not been right in that in that camp so far. Um and they're 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 up against it now to, to, to go through and it would be the kind of a sad end for as James James has said, uh, you know, a gloriously gifted generation of footballers it was interesting because th thinking back about it um at, at the the euros last summer um the team was obviously you know was much the same but they did play jeremy doku the young red winger and and he's not been in the team and and you know there are, there are arguments about you know maybe he's not been he's not been in incredibly good form at club level but 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 last summer at the euros he just gave them something you know sometimes you just need 
something fresh you need that little spark of, of youth and kind of obviously you know pace helps a lot which is another quality that this team doesn't have a lot of but but even just on a psychological level sometimes as a team you, you need to come into a tournament and just have that little point of evolution from the last you know from the last tournament and uh and they don't have it this this time obviously because doku hasn't been playing and you know whether it's him or whether it you know whether it's young, you know, could have played Charles de Capillara, the the AC Milan attacking midfielder. You know, sometimes you just need you need something. You just need a little point of spark, as I say. Just you know, some something which just gives you a bit of a lift and just stops that feeling of kind of staleness and stasis, which which Belgium seem to have. Um, but but uh, they have lacked that badly, I think, um, in this tournament. Are they going home at the group stage? Early predictions. I think they are. Yes, I, I think I think they are. I don't think they'll beat Croatia. I can't. I can't see it. The Croatia. I think you know. If you look back at the last twelve months, Croatia are just a better football team than Belgium at the moment. Um, you know, Croatia's form has been strong even even before the World Cup. They won their Nations League group. Uh, I mean, funnily enough, you know, some of the, some of the things that that have been saying about Belgium are also true of Croatia. They obviously also have some old players, but they also have those little points of newness as well. You know, you have Guardiol playing at centre-back, you know, very young, very, very young, talented player. And yeah, this this Croatia for me is just a team that has managed its evolution much, much better than than Belgium have. To me, Croatia is the stronger team and, and I think it would be a surprise if Belgium were to win that game on current form. I agree. I think I was really impressed with Croatia tonight. They moved the ball really quickly. Obviously, they went behind very early to a Davis header you know they didn't kind of panic they just played the football and they, they moved the ball really quickly really positive created a lot of chances and you just look at their midfield Modric Brozovic and, and uh, Kovacic and it's, you know so much control in the middle of the park uh, experience a bit of creativity and bite and up top Kramaric could have had a hat-trick Levaya took his goal brilliantly so you know that, that they certainly took a major step forward from uh, after their opening game and I agree with James I think that I think probably Croatia will be the, the team to come out on top in that one. I wouldn't say Croatia are infallible or anything like that, but clearly Belgium are going to have to find something they haven't had so far in this competition if they're going to go through. I went to the game between Canada and Croatia and yes, a comfortable victory. And yes, we know that Croatia are at a certain level I think Canada just fell so short of, of that level. In fact, the level of the competition tonight, very naive. I don't think they played much situational football very well. They weren't getting bodies behind the ball in the situation that they were. I mean, it was very, very naive football at times. Even when they were chasing a goal, you know, they would turn down the ability to put the ball in the box just to keep possession. And yes, obviously you're playing against Croatia. And yes, you don't want them to, to run you into the ground. But I think you aren't going to get that many opportunities to put the ball in the box. And clearly they weren't to spurn those or an opportunity to shoot when they had the opportunity to shoot was just silly. Yes, there were a couple of individual errors turning over the ball, leading to goals. I think the Croatians took their goals brilliantly. And yeah, but I I, I don't think the, the Canadians would have deserved a result, of course. But um, But actually, I think part of the fact that Croatia looked so good was that I think, you know, Canada being at a World Cup after such a long gap, I just think the occasion got to them a little bit and 
you know, I, I was really disappointed with them in terms of their lack of urgency, needing to get a result to stay in the competition at that point in time, that they didn't go for a little bit more, that the, the you know, the likes of Alfonso Davis just being out of position, the substitutions weren't, you know, there were changes made, but not necessarily to do anything tactically. You know, they weren't going to change the game. Canada were playing in exactly the same way, which Croatia were incredibly comfortable with. And they just put on new players and they changed it at one point and moved away from a sort of wing back system, four at the back, put an extra body in an attacking sense. That was the only change that they made. But even then, it didn't feel like there was a change of approach. You know, they didn't seem like they quickened the tempo, didn't seem like they went more direct. You know, I'm just disappointed because I was sitting in the middle of those Canada fans and I feel your pain. But yeah, I don't necessarily think Croatia will beat Belgium for sure. Definitely they're playing better. Belgium need to find something that we haven't seen as yet, but um, I wouldn't write them off at this point in time. That is all I'm saying. Just quickly, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be—I wouldn't want to be too hard on Canada. Uh, absolutely, they were naive. They, the number of times they gave uh, Croatian attacking players so much space and time in the box was like criminal. And I think they had ten shots on target tonight. But there's been spells of the game of both games. They were absolutely great fun, like. So much kind of vertical football. <laughs> Just they love to get, love to. They look up, they play forward, and they've got some real dynamism. And I've, I've absolutely loved watching uh, Teon Buchanan. He kind of moves a bit like Leroy Sane. He's really quick, skillful, kind of fleet-footed. He's got a bit of a nasty edge to him as well. He, a couple of times, he's like offered a hand up after being fouled, and he slaps it away. I, I love a bit of that. So he was. <laughs> I've loved watching him. There've been several players. I've, I, I, and as I say, they were really, really un- unfortunate to lose, certainly, and they could quite easily have won against Belgium. So I'm sad to see them go out. I absolutely agree they were naive defensively and they were never going to go far because of that. But I've really enjoyed watching them. Do you know what it was in an attacking sense? It was uh, The reason I felt it was naive too is they know they're quick. And so they were so concerned about using that speed that the decision-making just became really, really poor. Um, uh, yeah, I just think, you know, they were opportunities for them to build themselves into the game a little bit better uh they'd lose possession too easily um or they'd force it a little bit and you know it was one of those where you just want the managers to sort of calm them down obviously at 2-1 down if they calmed them down at one or made it to half time I think they could have reassessed but the fact that they then went 2-1 down and then were just I don't know they just played keep ball for a while and Croatia kind of were like okay we'll just wait for you to make a mistake and then they scored the third and Croatia were like, well, we don't need the ball for the rest of the game. You guys have it. We're 3-1 up. We're more than happy with this situation. And then there was no gear change from Canada. Didn't feel like there was a gear change until literally we hit the 90th minute. And at that point, they needed to score twice and ended up conceding another. So I was I was disappointed by that because I think, I, I, well, I don't know what it was. I really don't know what it was that that made them play to a lower level. But I'm not hammering them. I'm just disappointed, okay? I'm just disappointed. I know. Come on, James. What did you think of Canada? Uh, to be honest, I, I didn't I, I didn't see a lot of, of, of that game. I, I just wanted to make one point though about, about the Croatia-Belgium game, which which I think is is important not to, to, to leave unsaid. Belgium are a different team with Romelu Lukaku up front. Came on and played, I think, the last sort of 10 or 15 minutes today. Um so potentially you would think would be in the frame to maybe start that game. And they're a different team with, with him up front, you know, whatever his kind of 
you know, whatever ups and downs he's had at club level. Uh, Lukaku's record for Belgium is absolutely phenomenal. It's 68 goals, I think, in 100 and, uh, 103 caps. He has a real understanding with Kevin De Bruyne in the national team. The team is, is just much, much better with, with him up front. And, you know, whatever Belgium's, whatever Belgium's limitations and, and problems that they have, if he's fit enough to start the game, they will be better, I think. And he'll be a handful for, for Lovren and Guardiola. OK, James Gearbrand, thank you very much. Gregor Robertson to you as well. We're not done just yet. We're going to get the uh, scoop on Lionel Messi's move to Inter-Miami with Matt Lawton next. Well, before we leave you, yes, of course, it is the game podcast during the World Cup, but there is big football news elsewhere concerning one of the players who is out here in Qatar, Lionel Messi, into Miami, close to agreeing a deal for him. The US club, confident the Argentina superstar will sign after the World Cup. The Miami franchise, co-owned by David Beckham, of course, expect Messi to move from Paris Saint-Germain at the end of the European season in a deal that will make the 35-year-old the highest-paid player in the history of the MLS. That is reported in the Times right now by our very own Matt Lawton, who joins us on the Game Podcast. Hi, Matt. Hi, you. Tell us, is this happening? And how big a story do you think this is for world football? Crikey. Uh, Is it happening? I'm always slightly wary with these stories. I always remember getting a phone call one one day, and it was David O'Leary's then lawyer... And David O'Leary at the time was the Aston Villa manager. And his lawyer said, I'm on my way to see an employment lawyer. We've got a contract from Newcastle and we're just going to basically go and see this employment lawyer to get him out of his contract at Aston Villa. So I wrote the ne- for the next morning's paper that David O'Leary was poised to become the new manager of Newcastle. Pretty well sourced information. And later that day, Graham Souness was unveiled as the new manager of Newcastle. So look, th- things things can things can change in football. Of course they can. But as I've said, there is confidence, and I think a great deal of confidence in Miami. They think they've got him. They think whatever talks have been taking place, and this has been going on for well over a year. Um, you know that they, they first uh, expressed their interest in him back in uh, June last year um, and the owners uh, have, have consistently said that they want him. I went out to Miami back in February and I did an interview with Phil Neville who's just had his contract renewed as the, as the, as the manager. They got to the playoffs and he's got another year's extension and, and, and in that interview they said how much they wanted Messi. Um, and the reason I've written this story is because two different sources have told me that they think they are extremely close now to getting a deal done and they're confident that once this World Cup is over that that he will agree to sign them. Now, that story has prompted a response from his um, um, representative who is pushing back a little bit on that and suggesting it's not as close as I think it is. I obviously can't get into the detail of of who's telling me this information, but all I can say here is we're standing by the story. I mean, it would be a massive, massive move for Messi to go to MLS, and it would be the biggest player, the greatest player to ever step foot in that division. I mean, a lot of people think 
he still has something left to give in Europe. Maybe even a reunion at Barcelona would be his preferred way of maybe ending his career, spending a couple of years there. I mean, judging on what we've seen uh, at the World Cup, still has a lot to offer as a player, even though he's he's 35 years old. It would be a bit of a shock, wouldn't it? Um, why do you think Messi would want to go to the MLS? Well, he told the Spanish media last year that he would like to finish his career in America. And he he loves Miami. I, I discovered this when I was out there that he's got a I believe he's got a home there in Miami. It's where he chooses to spend his family holidays. Um, he is 35. He's going to retire. We believe he's said that this is going to be his his last um, uh, time in international football at this World Cup. And he obviously hopes to sign off by winning it. I must admit, I did think they were going to win it until they lost their opening game. But well, they did look better, uh, was it, last night? Um, but yeah, it, it, he's look, he is 35. Um, he will be, there's still half the season to play with PSG. The con- his contract runs out then. Um, we, you know, as I said in the story, PSG may well yet try and extend that stay, but I don't think he's had a particularly enjoyable time in Paris. Um, as I say, uh, the story is, is based on sources telling me that... that they think they're very a very long way down the road into getting him to sign. So there we are. You know, it's it's clubs get very close to signing players and things happen and they and they and they change their mind and go somewhere else. But I've written the story because it's based on people information from people I trust, information from people that tend to be right when they tell me things, and that's why I've dipped my toe into the. Um, into the waters of, of, of a transfer story. It's not the kind of story I write very often, but um, that's why I've reported it tonight. How big an influence has David Beckham been in all of this? I think he's been very big. Um, obviously, he has that superstar uh, quality that I'm sure would be attractive to um, uh, to someone like Lionel Messi. He also has a, has, has a connection to him through Adidas. They've both been huge Adidas ambassadors over the years and and because of his relationship with the Qataris uh, actually a, a situation I've I've reported on and been critical of Beckham um, uh, you know for, for having this ambassadorial role with the Qataris for this World Cup but the fact of the matter is he does have a relationship with the Qataris and of course it's the Qataris who, who own PSG so there's a a line of communication there. So I I think Beckham will be extremely central to this this transaction. Um, And as I say, it's certainly because of the people that uh, I've gleaned this information from. That's another reason why I'm confident that... um, that they are confident. Okay, Matt Lawton, thank you for joining us on the game with that huge story about Messi to Miami. You can read more about that on the Times app right now. Our thanks to Matt and thank you all for listening as well. Remember, we'll be back tomorrow. We'll look at Brazil and Portugal. They're both in action in their second group matches. We'll see if they can qualify for the knockout stages. Remember, if you want to follow any of the great uh, journalism that's going on at the moment from here in Qatar around this World Cup, download the Times app wherever you get your apps from and you can subscribe to us as well. The times.co.uk forward slash the game uh, and we'll see you tomorrow. Take care.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.